The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. Could you use a new approach to your life and to your work? And would you like to be better able to get your point across to others? Is there a way that you could be more inspirational to others? Well, if you answered yes to any of those questions, you'll want to hear what our guest, Jason Harris, has to say. Jason is the co-founder and CEO of Mechanism, an award-winning creative advertising agency. He's also the author of the best-selling book, The Soulful Art of persuasion, the 11 habits that will make anyone a master influencer. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Really psyched to be here. It's going to be a fun conversation. I, I It is. It is. I know your goal is to make people more authentically persuasive. Why aren't most of us that way? Uh, well, I think a lot of us are that way, or we start off that way. And I think over time to get ahead or to sell, we're sort of trained to not necessarily be that way. And and to me, it's about going back to the core and following your beliefs and, and sort of playing the long game. And one reason why I wrote this book is I'm a big uh, business book reader. So I'm, I'm an avid reader. And I didn't find when it comes to persuasion, aka sales, aka business, I didn't see a lot of books that were talking about ins- being inspirational or being soulful or giving back or being generous or empathetic. They were much more about sort of how to leverage your your power or to mirror and match the person you're selling to. Or it was almost like hacks, like tips and tricks and hacks. And to me, I felt there was a white space in the market and a story that I wanted to tell about how you can be authentically persuasive to be successful. So that's really why I wrote the book. You don't really see a lot of business books that stress empathy, but that's one of your main principles. How does that look in the work world? So empathy to me is about being a natural, curious person about others. And it's listening more than you judge. And, you know, one principle I believe in is is making it about the other person and seeking out collaboration. So joining you know, forces with people from diverse backgrounds. I work in an, I run an advertising agency. I'm the CEO of an advertising agency, making sure everyone feels like the credits don't matter. You know, who came up with the idea isn't the important thing. It's that we did it together. It can be the client. It can be with the agency, people at the agency. So we, we don't really believe in credits for our work because it's all about the collective and you want to allow people to feel like, a good idea can come from anywhere and that people can speak up and say their opinion. And there isn't such a necessary hierarchy of, of leadership and, and, you know, decisive business calls. It's done more in a collective way. And when I say that it might feel more kumbaya than it actually is, but it's about allowing people to have 
a space where they feel like they're safe and their opinions matter and they can be trusted. Not that you follow their opinions or you do, you know, someone has to make a call at the end of the day and that's going to be someone at the top but that people are heard and that's really important. You know, the other thing, big thing for empathy in, in your personal life and in business life is to look at people through trying to seek out commonalities and not differences and trying to find the common ground that we're, we all deal with in this human experience. And, you know, a stat I always throw out there is that uh, we're 99.9% all of us have the same DNA and it's that 0.1% in each of us that makes us different. But if you look at that common DNA, you'll find that we're, you know, we're a lot more alike than we think we are. We think we're so different. And you see that, you know, we just came off a, a contested election. You see that divisiveness and it seems like you're on one side of the world and, and the, the other half is on the other side. But when it really comes down to it, we're sort of all after the same things. We're all after opportunity and, you know, feeling secure having family and friends, having a good life. Those are all commonalities. And you have to sort of start uh, in, in work and in personal life with that, with that level set, you know, not feeling like people are against you or we're also different. How do you think we're seeing soulful persuasion right now in the advertising that has sprung up around us in the midst of the pandemic? So in terms of a lot of the, the wave of advertising that was supporting like healthcare workers, that type of thing. Right, right. Uh, it yeah. just seems to me like we're seeing a whole lot more of what you're talking about, of this soul, soulful persuasion in advertising right now. It seems more genuine. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that um, that went with, uh, that's actually true. I mean, there's a lot of studies. There's a business reason behind it. You know, there's a study after study that shows that consumers expect brands to stand for something. And in order for a consumer, especially younger consumers, millennials, in order for them to support a brand and be brand loyal, they need to see the brand stepping up and, and making the world a better place. And that's really shifted a lot of how brands have behaved and brands know that. And they're, they're not necessarily doing it because they feel like it's the thing they should do. They're doing it because it's an imperative. They realize if they want to talk to a younger consumer base, they have to be inspirational and stand for more than shareholder value or, you know, selling moving units and selling things. They have to be a higher level uh, above that. And so you saw this trend in advertising where it was all about, you know, supporting healthcare workers. Sometimes brands would, um, talk about how they're supporting their employees. And so there's sort of, um, this was really during the pandemic, the, the wave of that idea of what I talked about of being purposeful and standing for more than just what you're selling really come, come alive across the board with all brands. This obviously meant for a huge change in advertising and everything had to be related to the pandemic. So how did your teams refocus their energies into coming up with ideas related to the pandemic and making those ads that would give us chills when they were working remotely and couldn't collaborate in person? Because I imagine that would be so different for them and just a big change. Yeah, that was that was really, really um, a hard thing to do and a hard way to work. You know, for my business and for a lot of businesses out there, it's about those those happenstance things that happen in the hall ways or sitting around a table and brainstorming to, to, to come up with a, with ideas. And it's that, that sort of kinetic crash of thoughts that land you something really powerful. And now 
if you have an idea last minute and you want to tell the team about it, you have to schedule a Zoom, look at everyone's calendar, you know, get everyone on video. And it's much more arduous um, way of doing it than it was before. But what we did at the beginning of the pandemic was write a playbook that talked about how brands can leverage this moment and the things that they should and shouldn't do. And that white paper really helped um, create a playbook for everyone in the company that we could follow. Um, so it was basically like a guiding sort of guiding principle and that really helped. And, um, you know, we, we always believe when you're talking about brand in any way, and, and, you know, when you talk about, when you talk about, um, nobody told me brand, you know, you guys are building a brand together. You each have your personal brands. You should always know what you stand for and be really consistent with what you're talking about and what your purpose is and then go from there. So what's the core thing you believe and how can you apply the thing you believe to the thing you're going through? So how can you apply what you guys believe in, in your brand to this pandemic? And if those things line up, then, then you've got something. If you're just jumping from a uh, important thing that's, that's on, on everyone's mind in pop culture to, you know, from black lives matter to maybe gun control to, gender equality, and you're just jumping around all these things because that's what people are talking about. That's not very authentic, inauthentic way of jumping on the bandwagon of pop culture. So really it should be uh, sort of endemic to your brand and go back to your core values. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I'm wondering along those lines, how important are the words and the phrases that we use with others in terms of persuading them as compared with the intent behind them? Yeah, so... Um, that's, that's a really, uh, great point because I talk a, a lot about, um, in the book, how important language is and the idea of using power, uh, powerful words versus, uh, powerless words and how it can, it can sort of throw, um, a different meaning. And I'm, I'm going to pull some up actually, while we're talking about it, this is from the book. And, and I, I'm glad that you brought this up because it's a really good opportunity to, to showcase sort of, um, sort of how, it, how you can, you can speak with power. When we talk about words that are, are powerful or powerless, and we talk about positive persuasion versus negative persuasion as demonstrated. So here's a, here's sort of three examples. So if you're talking about a product, it's saying, this product will give you more energy versus saying uh, this product will make you less tired. Cause that's coming off the idea that we're solving you're tired mm -hmm. and that's an issue versus the positive side of what it'll give you. So if you talk about donating, if you don't donate to this cause, you know, these dogs will die or people will die. That's one approach. A more positive way is twisting it to say your donation could save lives. Um, if you're, you know, if you're talking about smoking, smoking takes years off your life versus the positive, which is if you quit now, you'll live a much longer life. And so when you're talking about uh, persuading or talking about the workplace or talking about branding, the way you twist the same message can have a very different effect on the person you're talking to. And I always, I always ear towards positive persuasion versus negative persuasion, because I always find that to be much more effective. And, and you, you can see that starkly in the, whatever your political preferences are, but in the Biden brand versus the Trump 
brand. You know, one plays off of anxiety and fear and one plays off of a much more hopeful, positive um, type of persuasion. And so they're very stark contrasted. Um, and, you know, I think the country now is leaning towards positive persuasion versus negative persuasion. How many times does the typical consumer have to hear an ad or see something before they actually make a move? That's a good question. And that's been studied in a lot of uh, different uh, studies based on what medium you're talking about, what post you're talking about. Is it digital? Is it social? Is it outdoor? Is it reading it from uh, uh, earned media, from press? Uh, but typically, it takes it takes three to four before a consumer will make up their decision if they're going to take an action or not. They'll be open-minded, and that's typically the amount of impressions of frequency that it takes. So say they're watching it on TV. Do they typically even take notice the first time? In the subconscious, it'll go in the back of their mind. They'll take it in, uh, but it, it'll it, it, they'll never remember it, right? Then the second time, it'll feel a little bit more familiar. And then the third, by the third time, they're understanding it and starting to make the decision process. And then by that, sometimes the third time, but usually by the fourth time, they, they have a definitive answer of how they're doing it. That is why the thing that you just brought up, and I know we're drifting into sort of branding now, what you just brought up are is so important because in order to do that, when you have to send the message out to the consumer, multiple times for them to make a decision. You have to have a message that's simple and understandable, and it has to be really consistent. Because if you're doing, if you're reaching the consumer four times, but you, you keep tweaking your message, that's sort of like resetting the dial every time you do that. So consistency of message is really important. And then the message has to really be simple. You have to be able to literally have that elevator pitch, no matter what medium, and really under have people really understand. Unless Unless you're a company like Geico, where you're going to spend, you know, 300 million on the on the airwaves, and you can't get away from a Geico ad, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then, yeah. Then, it, then it doesn't matter because you can kind of make a joke and just say Geico at the end because of the repetitiveness of it. How can the lessons regarding soulful persuasion in the advertising business translate to our personal? lives, our personal selves, our, our personal brands? Um, well, it's interesting. The, I, write, I write a lot in the book about how, and you guys brought this up at the, at the beginning, brands being more inspirational and having a purpose. That's also a way that brands are becoming more human. You know, they're not just selling something. They're trying to humanize their brand and show that the brand, you know, has, has a heart. And so brands are becoming more human. And we t when we talk about personal branding, I find that it's really important for personal brands that you're developing. You know, you guys are working on, on your thing and, and on social media. It's really important for simple and consistent, just like you would for a brand, but that you're, you're a human. You know, you're not a cold brand that doesn't have a point of view or emotions, but that you are a honest brand and you can talk about your ups and downs, but you have that sort of authentic, unique voice. So being yourself for a brand or a personal brand is sort of everything. That's like the, that's the basement layer of soulful persuasion is being yourself and being an original and not being afraid of your personal idiosyncrasies or what makes you unique. 
or your values. And the same is for a brand. A brand should have a fun voice. They should be personable. They shouldn't be, you know, sort of stoic and some monolith. They need to be very um, unique and have a voice. And, and that, that allows people to open up and be themselves when you're yourself. That's the same for personal brand as well. Yeah. And you talk about how important it is to try and be inspirational to others. And I'm wondering if that was one of the ideas that you had when you started Mechanism was, hey, I'm going to be approachable and I'm going to try and be a role model for these employees. And maybe if that's what led to such success with the agency. Um, yeah, that's a great point. I don't think it was as, as calculated as that. I had I had worked uh, uh, like your sister. I had worked at a lot of different agencies and I always knew I wanted to start my own with, with some other people. And I took in what I liked about the places I worked and the culture and then threw away the things that I didn't like. And I really, at the beginning, we wrote down the, our values and beliefs that haven't really changed. You know, 15 years later, they haven't changed. And we stood by those values in order to, to, to live those values sort of, you know, every day. And we don't always get it right, but we're always, we're always trying to have people feel like when they come to work, they're in a supportive environment among their friends and not a, you know, cutthroat knife fight ad agency. One of the points you make in the book that I found fascinating, you say it's impossible to anticipate what parts of your identity other people might be drawn to. Why is it important to keep that in mind? Because we often will try to hide the things that make us us until we really feel like we know someone. And my argument is being yourself is also an act of being a generous person because you're leaning into the things that you like, your role models, what attracts you, uh, even if it's um, something that you might feel is a little out there, a little awkward, or you might be embarrassed about, it's allowing yourself to, um, you know, show some psychic skin and be yourself that allows people to be inspired and drawn towards you because you're not hiding anything. You know, you're not you're not sort of trying to project the only the best version of yourself. Right. And you talk about how important it is to be generous with our time. How do you do that as a CEO when you have so many obligations and it seems like so many founder CEOs are just looking at the clock, trying to wait until the next meeting and have a little time for themselves? Yeah, there's some, you know, simple. It's a great, great uh, question. There's some simple things that you can do. So I'll have. Uh, two one-on-ones with every employee that gets scheduled and that takes about a half hour a day. So I'll, I'll make sure a half hour once, once a day for a half hour of meeting with an employee at any level. And that allows me to get a pulse on the company, but allows me to really understand that person on a deeper level. So that's one, one thing I employ. And then another thing is we do all company meetings where people can ask any question they want and we have to answer that question and that, that that can be anonymous or not, but that allows for people to feel um, this transparency from the, from the company. But those are just some ways uh, that we incorporate trying to be in touch with as many employees as, as we can, but it's, you know, like you point out, it's really, really hard. It's something you have to be really mindful of 
in order for it to be effective. What do you think the most important qualities are that we can cultivate to get others to be on our side, to hear our side of a story? So beyond this idea of, of originality and being yourself, storytelling is really important. And And by the way, a lot of these principles that I talk about in the book are, you know, there's 11 habits covered in the book. I call them habits because anything can be practiced and learned over time. You might be a generous person by nature, but maybe not an empathetic person. So generous is something that you just were born with and you feel that way, but you you don't really understand how to um, collaborate or see commonalities. And that's something that you can learn. So like for me, I was always sort of what I would call original in myself, but I was never a generous person. Like I was probably more of a selfish person. That's something that I had to learn. But one thing that I think everyone needs to learn is this idea of being a great storyteller. Because if you want to get your point of view to an audience or to someone in your life, you need to be able to transport them emotionally and you need to be able to tell a story to get your point across, to make them feel something that is way more important than stats and data and logic story. Storytelling always trumps sort of the logical argument. And so that's one thing I would um, definitely ask everyone to, to try to really practice that muscle of learning to be a great storyteller. And I have some some techniques in the book about that. Yeah, talk to us a little bit about those techniques, because it seems like that would be a strategy that people could use to try and stand out in an interview in a time when so many people have lost their jobs and they need to find some sort of way to be unique amongst so many other qualified applicants. Yes, that's great. So one one thing you can do is when you think about storytelling, there's sort of stories that are unique to you, your life events that you've gone through, and you can talk about those and things that have um, shaped who you are. That's one part of storytelling. Another part is uh, books and movies and music that have always spoken to you and really writing down why they matter to you and what's behind what the message is. And you can talk about those stories as well. And movies are a good one because if they're popular or books, people would be familiar with the story. And so you can tell that story and put your own spin on what it meant to you. But people also love stories when they're familiar. They love when they can relate to them or they remember them or they know what you're talking about. But one, one technique I do with storytelling is I'll, I'll write down the story I want to tell literally on a piece of paper, and then I'll practice rehearsing how I'm going to tell that story. And then I kind of get it out of my head because I've somewhat memorized it and I'll memorize the first and last word of our first and last sentence of that story. So I have those queued up in my head and then I'll be able to, you know, call from the call from those stories when I feel like the time's right or I'm trying to make a point. And so that's um, some some techniques that take a little bit of work, but that really, really pay Who off. Who inspires you? Who can we look to and say, this is a great person as far as soulful persuasion is concerned? For me, the number one uh, person that, that was a role model to me was David Bowie. And so growing up, David Bowie to me was the 
iconic sort of the far end extreme of being original and being himself. He changed, you know, genders. He wasn't man or woman. He messed with musical styles. He created characters, but they were always coming from an idea or a thought that he had. And he didn't really care what other people thought about those, those ideas that he had. So he really leaned into uh sort of flying his freak flag and doing his own thing. And that's how he became successful. When he originally started his career, he, the label that signed him wanted him to be a folk singer like Bob Dylan. And so he put out two albums of him making folk music that no one bought. And then he quit the label and went out and did his own thing. And then, you know, came back and he's the David Bowie that we all remember. And he became, you know, one of the most successful artists of the modern era because he did it the way he wanted to do it. And when he tried to do it the way others wanted him to do it, he wasn't successful. So that, yeah, that's not who I would have thought you would have picked. I would have thought it would have been somebody in the industry. So I think that's somebody that so many people of all generations can relate to. And Jason, we always ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So what did nobody tell you about advertising or success, character building, wherever you want to take it that you wish they had before the start of your career that would have helped you avoid some missteps along the way? Yeah, I think um, nobody told me how important it is to know where you're going. And so when I say know where you're going, and we talked a lot about storytelling, really thinking about, you know, you can take life in two ways. You can take life in you follow what life serves you up and you sort of go that way, or you can craft your story and know where you want your story to end up and what you're striving for and what your goals are and then work backwards. And I wish, you know, that simple idea or or that simple notion, I wish somebody had told me that because I started so much of my life just sort of going, not knowing where I was going to end up and sort of going with um, the flow, if you will, I'm happy where I I did end up eventually, but at some point I realized I need to write my own story and then figure out how to get there. And so that's something I wish I had known early on. Wow. I love that. I love that. And Jason, how can people connect with you on social media and the internet? They can um, go to the soulfulart.com, which is my website. And then you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jason underscore Harris. Well, it's been awesome to talk with you. And I think that these strategies are different than what a lot of our guests have had, but so useful, especially right now. So thank you so much for sharing those with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a real blast. Our thanks to Jason Harris, whose best-selling book is The Soulful Art of Persuasion, The 11 Habits That Will Make Anyone a Master Influencer. And again, you can learn more about him and it at thesoulfulart.com. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. 